Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld and Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. There are some losses in life that are tragic, but we know that we all suffer from the mortal condition called humanity. We, we, we're the only species on the planet that really knows or that we're certain knows that we were once not here and that we one day will no longer be here. And nearly every faith tradition um, has a lot to say about how to approach the end of life and what to do when someone dies, and we're all aware of it. Um, the Jewish tradition, uh, now over 2,000 years old, has some exquisite and important and some inscrutable and therefore requiring demystification approaches to how we deal with the end of life. And what we decided to do um, this fall into the winter was to spend some time on Shabbat mornings, in a Sunday morning, uh, Yom Iyun, day of inquiry that we had to postpone because of the catastrophe four weeks ago, and classes. We wanted to get the community talking about things that are not easy to talk about so that the education doesn't only happen the moment that a loved one dies and you say, what do I do now? Right? Um, so as I said before, we have postponed parts of this because we've been working so hard and focusing so much recently on, on what's happened in Israel. But we have this morning uh, during services and then two weeks from now as a lunch and learn after services to learn about some of the Jewish approaches to end of life and death and burial. And this is also connected to the Hebra Kadisha, which we're about to learn about, that Rabbi Schatz had been dreaming about for a long time and, and was in the process of putting together and then was put into action for the first time overnight when Esther passed away. So the first time that the Beth Am and Ikar joint Hebra Kadisha, which is the burial society, um, had their holy and awful work to do. It was, uh, in, it was for Esther. And so we wanted to teach about it a little bit. And there's so much to say, and joking aside, we're not going to be here all day. Um, the first thing that is important to talk about is that this is, an, this is obvious, but in Judaism it's reinforced very explicitly that everything that is done by the living for the dead and in honor of the dead can never be paid back. Right? It's only paid forward. Right? There are a lot of things we do in life that we hope or expect that because we did it to someone, that person will, when it's our turn, move back to us. Anything we do as a family member or a friend or community, someone who's passed away, is obviously not coming back to us in a direct way. If you believe in, in, in karmic happening, that's another thing. But that, is, is, that person is no longer something, someone who can do something for you. And the Jewish phrase for that kind of selfless act, um, generosity, it's called chesed shel emet. Chesed is translated in so many different ways. Uh, loving kindness, compassionate deeds, it's the same root from which you get the word chassid, a chassid, right, which is a, a, um, a sect of Judaism. But the source of, excuse me, the word chassid is someone who is pious, who does something beautiful. Chesed, shel emet, what kind of piety, what kind of loving kindness? Of truth, meaning the truest form of extending yourself to someone else is chesed, shel emet. That phrase has biblical origins. So if you look at the first sheet on your text, you have the end of Jacob's life, the end of Jacob who becomes Israel, so our people's namesake in Parshat Vayechi, the last section of the book of Genesis, the, 
the fourth to the last chapter, but the last Jewish division of the text. It was Israel's time to die. Israel now being used as a name for Jacob, not the people. Jacob called his son Joseph. He said to him, If I've done anything for you in life, Joseph, if I mean anything to you, if I found favor in your eye, put your hand underneath my thigh. It was a way of, of having someone swear in the ancient world. Make an oath. Vasita imadi, do for me what? Chesed ve'emet. It's interesting here in the original, it's not chesed shel emet, the loving kindness of truth, but these are two things together. Do me a loving kindness and do me truth. Meaning, like, what does it mean to do someone truth? Right? It's a weird phraseology. Do something for me that couldn't be truer in terms of what I'm owed. I'll not take bereni b'mitzrayim. Don't bury me in Egypt. This is the promise that, jo- that Joseph makes, that when Jacob, Jacob dies, he's going to be buried in the land of Canaan, which, according to our tradition, he is. Right? So our Torah, the original Hebrew, gives us this phrase, chesed ve'emet, that was turned into chesed shel emet. And if you go to a, a funeral, every rabbi does this differently. When we talk about uh, personally burying the person and shoveling mounds of earth onto the grave, we describe it as a chesed shalmet, right? It's an act of, of personal, intimate, loving kindness that can never be paid back, only paid forward. Um, and that grew into a, kind of a phenomenon in, Jewish, in the Jewish idea that there was nothing more significant, nothing more sacred than taking care of someone who had died. Now, intellectual and spiritual traditions love superlatives. We love things that are the most important thing. Two weeks ago in Cafe TBA, I taught about the fact that another thing that's considered the most important thing is redeeming captives, right? There are all sorts of texts in our Talmud that say, if you're ranking the mitzvahs, the one that's highest is redeeming captives. In another part of the Talmud, it says, if you're ranking the mitzvahs, the thing that's most important is taking care of the the deceased. And there is a phrase in rabbinic law and lore called meit mitzvah. Meit means death or someone who's died. Mitzvah means obligation. The idea is that um, if, if you have to choose between doing any mitzvah versus taking care of someone who died who has no one to bury him or her, by the way, in the ancient world, that's a very real thing, right? There's no Malino and Silverman mortuary. There's someone who died, may not have been found until days after the person died, may have lived alone, died in the street, Right? It was the community's obligation to say nothing else matters now that we have found this person to make sure that he or she is buried with dignity. That's called the mitzvah of meit mitzvah, and it has to do with this notion of chesed shel emet, the highest form of charity or loving kindness you can do to someone. Look at some of these sources that talk about um, this, uh, this concept, and we'll see how it developed over time first being applied only to people of renown and of significance in the community, and then to everyone. So source two, in the Babylonian Talmud, it says, Mivatlim Talmud Torah lehotza'at hameit shel Talmud chacham. You put, cast aside study of Torah, and if and for this is a new concept to you, in the Jewish tradition, study is not just a nice thing to do. Study is a holy endeavor where you hear God's word coursing through you. You even shut us put aside your study, which is considered a very holy act, in order to participate in hotza'at amet. Hotza'at amet literally means the bringing out of the corpse. It's a catch-all phrase for the things that you do to someone who has died until they're buried. But which kind of person do you put aside your Torah study for? A Talmud Chacham, someone who's a sage, right? So you hear in this source 
first of all, you hear that we're not yet applying this concept to everyone. And we're saying that for someone who's dedicated their life to studying Torah, who you might think would want you to do nothing else but study Torah, if that person died, you put aside your study of Torah to make sure that that person is buried with dignity. So that's a text from about 1,800 years ago. If you go back to just about 400 years ago, 450, Rabbi Moshe Isserlis, who was an Ashkenazi rabbi in Krakow and who wrote a gloss, an Ashkenazi Eastern European gloss onto a code of Jewish law that was written in the land of Israel. This is source three. You have the Hebrew at the bottom, the English at the top of page uh, two. In our society... Anyone should cancel what they're doing, including study of Torah, for any person. We don't, we don't like, uh, debate how learned a person was to determine if we're supposed to put aside our study of Torah for them. But his rationale is interesting. I'm not, I wonder what he would say in this generation. There are no Jews in our community who are not really learned in Torah and Mishnah. Parentheses. I don't know if he's being very generous or if he's just responding to the reality of his time. It may be that he's saying, how could it not be that, 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 how could it not be that any Jew is, is not really learned in text? So we're going to presume that everyone is learned and therefore we're going to apply it to them. Or in Rabbi Moshe Isserlis' world in Krakow in the 1570s, it was really the case that there were very few unlearned secular Jews. Everyone deserves this, right? Sometimes you are, you, you, um, Assume generously when it comes to Jewish practice. One of the more common ones that you may have come across is that um, on fast days, on minor fast days, not Yom Kippur, but minor fast days, a special liturgy is said if at least six people in the room are praying, uh, sorry, are fasting that day, right? So in some communities, they're very like, like, like they count. They're like, who's fasting? And if you have six, the, the tradition I follow is, I'm going to assume that the Jews in this room are observant Jews and they're fasting. I'm not going to ask them what, what they've eaten that today. And we, we do the ritual assuming that. So I'm not, which, I'm not sure which way he meant it, but he says, and also the Isha and a woman who fears heaven, meaning a religious woman, Dina Kamanda Kari Vitani, we treat even a woman, right? 16th century cracker, women were not studying Torah, right? So it's actually a very... Um, almost modern egalitarian idea for its time. We're even going to treat the women as scholars, even though technically they weren't. And it's our custom to be lenient, meaning to make sure we're focusing on their burial, uh, even for a woman and for a child, even for a child who has not yet studied Torah. The idea being, anyone who died deserves this attention. And if you don't have a group of people who are dedicated to taking care of the needs of the dead, that fourth, fifth Hebrew word in that line, mit askim, literally means those who busy themselves with. But you may have seen that if you ever go to a shiva, not in our community, but in a more orthodox community, there is a, there's a group, a society called the misaskim. The misaskim is just an Ashkenazi uh, transliter- uh, translation or pronunciation of mit askim, those who deal with, those who deal with the needs of the dead. If you don't have a group that is focused on that, then anybody who dies gets the entire community's attention to make sure that they're buried with dignity. And at the time of bringing out the person for burial, everyone is supposed to cancel what they're doing, even including their business practices to make sure it's taken care of. Last source for this section, look at source number four. This is actually going back in time to the 12th century Maimonides, Code of Jewish Law. Mivatlin Talmud Torah, 
You cancel your Torah study for uh, the mitzvahs of bringing out the dead and also for taking care of a bride. Notice he does not say that you do it only for someone who is a scholar. In what case do we do that? Assuming there isn't another group in a community that's taking care of it, everyone's supposed to do it. But if you have a society, what kind of society? We're about to hear, a chevra kadisha, that is taking care of those needs, you don't have to feel it's your personal responsibility to cancel what you're doing to take care of them. But if there isn't a society, you must. And if the thing that you're doing when you're not taking care of the deceased is not the study of Torah, I know that's a double negative. If you're just like, you know, watching Netflix or you're, you know, you know, you're, you're rearranging, you know, the books on your bookshelf, then put that aside and your obligation when there is a death in the community is to take care of their needs. Beginning of the idea of how significant it is in the Jewish community to focus on the, on the uh, honor and the dignity to the deceased um, that now leads into a Hebrew Kedisha. Rabbi Schatz. Okay. So if you look, if you turn the page to page three, we're going to look at, um, you can look at the paintings. They're kind of, they are going to illustrate, are you going to talk about them? Yeah. Okay. They're going to illustrate the Talmud that we're about to read. Um, And so if you want to just be looking at the paintings while I'm talking about the the Talmud piece, um, you're, you're more than welcome to do that. What we're going to see here is why it's important for not just people who feel that this is a holy act, and so a few people are going to do it, but for everyone to feel that they have some kind of connection to making sure that this is a mitzvah done in the community, that this is a thing that we take care of our friends, that we take care of our community members, that we make sure that this is something that is communal, right? That this is that this is not just a specific group. Now, in large communities where you have 900 families, there is a specific group because not all 900 families are going to be interested in this. But back in the day when communities were just a few families coming together to spend Shabbat together, everyone was involved. A person who was very rich, a person who was very poor, a person who was a doctor and knew the intricacies of taking care of a dead body medically, or a person who was a scholar and knew how to write books, right? Everyone knows how to take care of someone they love. And what our rabbis are teaching us is that we should put that not only to knowing how to take care of somebody that we love in life, but also in moments where they are not going to be able to take care of themselves or us one day, as Rabbi Klickfeld mentioned, and we should be able to also take care of them in death. So we're going to read through a longer piece of the Gemara, and I'm just going to read it in the English so I can skip around a bit. The Mishnah here, number seven on page three, says, one does not bring the first meal after burial. In Judaism, we we have a meal of consolation where we bring people together to eat after burial to the house of mourning on a small tray in a bowl or in a narrow-mouthed basket. So not in nice stuff, right? Not in the things that if you're going to someone's home for a dinner party that you might bring your lovely fruit salad on, Um, but rather in ordinary baskets. Everyone should be able to bring their food that they are contributing in the same way. Keep, go to now where it says Gemara. The next part, part is interesting, but not for what we're talking about right this second. 
The sages taught the following baraita, the following story. At first, the meal after the burial would be brought to the house of the mourner in various ways. The wealthy would bring meals in baskets of silver and gold, and the poor would bring in baskets of peeled willow branches. So there was a hierarchy. If you had money, you probably had nicer things, and so you didn't think twice about bringing to someone who you're trying to show consolation stuff in a nice vessel. But then if someone showed up who didn't have nice things, they were doing the same mitzvah. They were fulfilling the same commandment to be kind to their community members, to their family, and to bring them something that would be consoling to them, but they didn't have a nice vessel. So they were bringing it in something not as nice. And that showed a hierarchy, which our rabbis were not, were not pleased with. And the poor were embarrassed as everyone would see that they were poor. So the sages instituted that everyone should bring the meal in baskets of peeled willow branches due to the honor of the poor. We're not trying to make those who don't have resources feel badly, but there's also no reason to bring something in a really nice vessel. So let's just put everybody on the same playing field and make sure that everyone is bringing something to console the family, but it doesn't have to be your nicest china. The sages taught in another story. At first, they would serve wine in the house of the mourner during the first meal after burial, and the wealthy would do so in, you you see where this is going, in cups made of white glass, and the poor would serve in wine in cups of colored glass, meaning one was nicer, one was not as nice, and the poor were embarrassed. So again, we see this story. This is our oral tradition. For those of you who haven't heard of the Talmud before, this is our oral tradition. So stories were often repeated with different examples so that we would remember them better. So the basic understanding here is that everyone should be doing the same thing to not have the poor bringing something really, really, sorry, the wealthy bringing something really, really nice and the poor bringing something not as nice. We wanted everyone to feel like they could do the mitzvah together. Go to the, just for time's sake, you can read the other one if you'd like, but just go to the, the last piece here on page five. Uh, no, sorry. Oh, no, no, I'm right, right. At the top of page four, sorry. Um, no, top of page five. I was right. Top of page five. <laughs> okay, we were on page four. Top of page five. On a plain beer. So the, back in the day, bodies were brought on kind of like a cot looking thing, right? It wasn't just that they were on a casket. They were actually on like a slab, right? That, that you would then, after the body was prepared, it would be on, on this piece of, whether it was fabric or wood or whatnot, that's how they were, um, displayed, made from poles that were strapped together and the poor were embarrassed. The sages instituted that everyone should be taken out for burial on a plain bier due to the honor of the poor. So if you've ever been to a Jewish funeral, you might have noticed that predominantly Jews are buried in plain pine boxes. And that comes from this. We don't believe even in the last moments of being, this is a bizarre word to use, but showcased Right? We don't have a person showcase themselves or their lives in a way that shows wealth or shows a lack of wealth. Right? We want everyone to be in the same resources so that if you are a Rothschild or a pauper, as Rabbi Klingfeld would say, you are getting the same resources. We are all being buried in a way that is that is respectful of the person's life, no matter what they had and no matter who they were, right? Everyone is buried in a plain pine box. So this is the last piece here. 
At first, taking the dead out for burial was more difficult for the relatives than the actual death because it was customary to bury the dead in expensive shrouds, which the poor could not afford. So once upon a time, people were buried in, in garments that were more expensive. But then, for those of you who know the Jewish tradition, now we're buried in what are called shrouds, which are just linen garments, very, very, very uh, plain and simple garments. And this is where this comes from. The problem grew to the point that relatives would sometimes abandon the corpse and run away. Well, if we can't pay for these things, which our family deserves, we're just going to abandon the person and someone else hopefully can take care of it, as opposed to going through with the mitzvah. So there was a sense of, of obligation, but if you couldn't fulfill that obligation, there was actually this this embarrassment and then nothing potentially would happen to that person who had passed away. This lasted until Rabban Gamliel came and acted with frivolity, meaning that he waived his dignity by leaving instructions that he be taken out for burial in linen garments. This was a rabbi who had resources. This was a rabbi who could have been buried in the nicest clothing and deserved to be buried in the nicest clothing. Right? This was a rabbi with some acclaim. And so you would think, oh, well, if his body is going to be buried in anything, a rabbi of such high acclaim should be buried in beautiful clothing to show not only what he had, but to show that the community could come together to dress him in the nicest way possible. But because he knew that that was a problem for those who didn't have resources, he said, when I die, I will be buried in the most basic of shrouds. I'll be buried in linen garments. Tachrichin is what we call them today. And the people adopted this practice after him and had themselves taken out and buried in linen garments. Rav Papa said, and nowadays everyone follows the practice of taking out the dead for burial in this plain, in these plain hemp garments that cost only a dinar, meaning in the garments that are the most plain you could could wear, and that are the simplest in terms of both resources and also material. So when we, in just a moment, we're going we're gonna to go into kind of the, the aspects that, um, that comprise of what happens in a Hevra Kadisha. But you, I hope what you're hearing in both what Rabbi Kligfeld shared in his Torah and what I just shared, that there is an aspect of everyone participates in this. A, because everyone is going to go through this at some point, but also because we should take care of community in a way that they don't feel alone in this process, that everyone should be possible both in resources and also with their physical hands and helping make sure that this person has a respectful burial. One of the reasons why we're doing this series is that we, we the clergy of Beth Am, are at some point going to be in discussions with all of you at some point regarding death of loved ones, and we're going to be representing certain expectations and traditions that we think are representing Jewish values on these issues. And it's sometimes hard in the moment if the first time someone is hearing about this particular aspect of burial is in the raw moment of, of exposed mourning, better if you're learning at it in advance, including about why it's significant that someone is buried in a plain pine coffin and not what seems to be more of an honor, a beautiful mahogany one, right? And the reason why we suggest that someone not be buried in a beautiful mahogany one is because not everyone can afford a $9,000 casket. And Judaism says it's ridiculous to be buried in a $9,000 casket, and it's an insult to God to suggest that your being returned back to the earth should be anything other than in the plainest vessel, right? And parentheses, 
it frustrates Rabbi Schatz and I and many of our fellow clergy that sometimes the businesses that represent and do Jewish burial in our community, many communities, and apprentices within apprentices, I get it. Every business wants more revenue, right? So does Beth Am, even a nonprofit, right? But they are sometimes pushing and selling more expensive burial packages to you because they'll the upcharges are higher on a $9,000 mahogany casket versus an $800 plain pine box. And we want our community to be educated so at those moments they can say no, right? It's the same reason why this is not money for the funeral home, why we suggest that Jews not be buried in their finest suits. God doesn't care. They're buried the way every Jew is buried. Death and burial is not the only time that comes into practice. Think of the high holidays, right? The reason why we clergy wear the white kittles and we suggest that everyone in the community do so is so that on the day that we are standing in front of God uh, with the most at stake, we're not showing off our finest suits or finest dresses. I wear you know, a pair of light, light-colored khakis and a white shirt and a kittle because every Jew should look the same in front of God on those holy days because every Jew is the same in front of God on the holy days. Weddings. You know, it's so interesting. Um, in the modern era, weddings are often moments of conspicuous consumption and an enormous amount is spent on Jewish weddings, on a wedding dress, right, which is worn once, and on a wedding suit, right? Um, in, in a traditional approach to Jewish weddings, a bride should be uh, wearing a, you know, a, a simple white dress and a groom should be wearing a kittel, right? On my wedding, I wear a kittel, over an expensive tuxedo, right? <laughs> but, but, but the idea is that, that, that. And Javi wore a nice dress. I wore a nice dress, <laughs> but I already told my children what they should expect for their weddings, right? That, <laughs> that a couple. Sh- what, what should a couple look like under the chuppah? Like every other couple, it shouldn't. It shouldn't be a moment to show how expensive, what, what you can afford. It should be able to show that you're, you're a Jew getting married or you're a Jew at high holidays or you're a Jew dying and everyone gets the same treatment. Um, and what Rabbi Shas and I spoke about in the first two sections is this notion of Judaism's demand that we democratize, particularly at the moments of most raw tenderness and vulnerability. Democratize in terms of financial resources. And you saw the, tr- the development through the halakha democratize even in terms of learnedness. Of course, it's a wonderful thing to be learned. But when you die, that should neither be thrown back in your face or your family's face, nor should be, it be applauded. It, it, it's wonderful that you did it, but now you're returning to God. You're, you return to God the same way, that no matter how many hours you spend studying Torah. Maybe the reason why you didn't study Torah is because you had to work for a living, right? Um, look at, go backwards to page two, verse five, a short story, and then a quick look at these paintings. And then Rabbi Schatz will talk about the specifics of the Hever Kedisha. So the Hever Kedisha, the, the what, Aramaic words, which means holy society, is the words, it's a post-biblical word, post-Talmudic word. We believe the first time that the phrase Hever Kedisha was used to describe the people in a community who were trained on how to deal with the deceased was about the 16th century in Prague. Um, but at some point, um, uh, it became the phrase that all Jews use. In the Talmud, about 1,500 years beforehand, it's a different phrase used. Rav Hamnuna Iklad Ladarumata. A guy named Rabbi Hamnuna ended up in a place called Darumata. Uh, as far as I know, this is the only place in the Talmud where this place exists. We have no idea where it is. Somewhere in Babylonia, Rav Hamnuna was a Babylonian uh, Jew, so somewhere in current uh, modern-day Iraq. 
Shemakol Shipura Deshachva. He heard the sound of a shofar, not saying that Rosh Hashanah was coming. That's the way you t- let the community that someone had died. There was a particular kind of blast. That if you heard it, it's like, oh, someone died. Why did the community get informed? So that they could organize and take care of the deceased. Chaza hanach inshi avidata. And he heard the shofar blast, and then he saw people still going about their business and selling fruits in the market and working on their, you know, polishing their leather, etc., and he couldn't understand it. Amalu, he said to them, You all deserve to be in, in excommunication. I can't believe you're acting this way. Didn't somebody die in this town? What are you all doing uh, standing in your bookshop selling books? Aren't you supposed to be taking care of the deceased, as we know is obligatory to do? Amrule, they said to him, We have a chavruta in this place. In modern Jewish parlance, chavruta, which literally means um, a, a group or a partnership of two people, means people who are studying Torah together. This is the Talmud's phrase for what we now call a chavr kedisha. They said, don't worry, Rav Abnuna. We've got a group of people who are trained and dedicated. They heard the shofar blast. They're at work right now making sure the deceased is being treated with dignity. So we're permitted to keep going with the work, right? When you hear that someone dies in the community... Right? If you're on the Hebra Kedisha, which we'll talk about in a second, you might be poised to be uh, brought into service to help the person be uh, uh, buried. If you're not in the Hebra Kedisha, you might reach out to the family to express your condolences, but you don't stop your life because someone died in the community. We have people taking care of it, right? Amar uh, he said back to them, Ihachi, that's the case, Sharia Lahu. You're permitted, right? I'm sorry I got so angry. I just wanted to make sure that the deceased were taken care of. If you look at the pictures, these are very famous pictures in Jewish art from the early, sorry, from the late 18th century in Prague, about 230 years after what we can at least trace as the first use of the phrase Hebra Kedisha, pictures of the Hebra Kedisha. This is six in a, ser- in a series that's about 12. The first time I saw these pictures was in 1990. I saw the actual paintings in Prague. They're on display in the Jewish community in Prague. The first time I was in the Czech Republic, it was actually Czechoslovakia at the time. And it's showing the different stages of what the Hebra Kedusha would do. So top left, they are there going to uh, bring the deceased out from, uh, or, or, or actually ascertaining and the, the, the death that took place and wrapping them in the initial shrouds. Top right, you have them sewing the tachrichin, sewing the, shimp, the simple linen shrouds in which the deceased is going to be buried. Middle left. What are they doing, middle left? They're building the coffin or the beer, right? They were, this was, they were, it was not bought at mahoganycoffins.net. The community constructed, you can imagine, it was constructed in an hour. It was the simplest thing possible. Get some wood, get some nails, actually no nails, get some wood, and let's just make a simple container for this person to be buried in. Uh, middle right, they are doing the first part of Hotza Atamate, literally bringing, you can see the deceased in the, in the kind of the top left of the picture, um, out into the, uh, into the community, and they're also giving tzedakah, a, v- a version of Shmirah, yeah? Bottom left is the funeral procession. They're carrying the deceased out uh, to be buried. Um, well, actually, they're ca- carrying them out of the, of, of the home. And bottom right, what are they doing in bottom right? Tahara. Tahara which literally means a purifying process, is the main ritual that a Hebra Kadisha does when someone has died. It is holy. It is hard. It's 
the highest form of chesed shalemet, you have a group of people who are with the body, cleaning the body, and preparing the body for burial like every other Jew uh, is required to do. Um, it is not an embalming process. It's simply a washing. Um, and uh, we had been thinking, we, Rabbi Schatz, had been thinking for a long time that rather than send our congregation to use the Hevra Kadisha mortuary at the different mortuaries around us, what if we follow the Talmud's own dictums and say we have our own? We have a group of people. How many are, do we have? I mean, doing Tahara or on the Hevra Kadisha? Doing Tahara. Doing Tahara, probably about 60. 60 people in our community okay. and any car who are trained to do this very beautiful, very hard, very holy act of preparing the body for burial. Um, Rabbi Shatz is going to say in a little bit, in a moment, what Tahara is. The focus of our Chavah Kedisha is on this act, but the focus of our entire community on caring for the dead are all of these aspects. Um, and when someone in your family passes away and the death is local, if you, in case you didn't know this, now you know, you can ask the joint Chavah of Ikar and Tambo Beth Am to be the ones in the room who are preparing that person for burial. It is anonymous. You will never know who it is. And why will you never know who it is? Why, why is that kept anonymous? Right, but why is it important? So you don't, someone said it. You don't owe them anything. Right? Because how could you possibly pay someone back for the mitzvah of preparing your mother for burial? You'll never know who it was. Right? So you don't feel any sense of obligation to them. They did it for you because they love you and they love Jewish ritual, not because they wanted anything in return. Chesed shall emet. Okay, very, very briefly, and then I'll let Rabbi Klickfeld um, wrap up. So, so first of all, first of all, on November 18th, we are going to have kind of a practical conversation about all of this. Not that this isn't practical, but we're going to get into some more of the questions and the details of what goes into a Hever Kedisha, and also we'll be unveiling a something to be named um, that, that Rabbi Klickfeld and I met with the different um, mortuaries and funeral homes about in terms of furthering the education in our community about what it, what it means to know what you should expect or what you should request in life for, for your family to be prepared for your death, right? So knowing what it is that you might want to either ask us for or let us know about or make sure that the mortuary, the funeral home knows. So that's happening on November 18th. So I'm not going to go through the practicalities of the different things that like Rabbi Klickfeld and I might think are really great uh, that you should be taking into consideration. What I want to tell you is that 60 people sounds like a lot. And it's never enough when we need a tahara to be happening. And all 60 of those people work at noon when the tahara is happening. People stop and then do the tahara, right? As we learned from our halacha, we should do that. If we are part of the Hever Kadisha, we should stop to take care of this. But not all 60 people necessarily can. So though it sounds like a lot of people, we always need more people. You should also know that not every death notice that you get in this community is a family A that is happening here in Los Angeles, and therefore the Hever Kadisha is not um, is not being utilized because the body is not here in our city. And also, not everybody knows what tahara is to then ask for it, 
right? So if you know, this is part of the reason that we're doing this this year, is we're trying to educate as many people as possible about the things that you should know to ask for, not because we think that makes you a better Jew, but because we want you to know that the community is willing and able and ready to take care of you in all moments of Jewish life in this community. So the, the basics around a Hevra Kadisha is that this was, as Rabbi Klickfeld's mentioned a few times, this was a, a dream that I had based off of starting this in Northern California when I was a rabbi up there. I then came to Beth Am um, and, and was honored and heartbroken to, to be uh, very present at the death of one of my teachers and realized that this was something that I felt very connected to and yet wanted our community to feel just as connected Right, I I had the honor and was very sad to be present, to be able to sit shmira and to be able to help the family through this this tragic death. And at the same time, there were other members of our community who would have felt just as honored and just as ready to take on that grief to be with the family in those moments. So the Hevra Kadisha does two things. One is they sit shmira. For, for the deceased, that does not mean that you're sitting in a room literally with a deceased person. You are, there's a room that you sit in that is connected to the room that they are in. And you can say psalms. You can read books that they were connected to. The Hevra Kadisha will give you guidelines to what that space looks like. We just want the person who has passed away to be in community to still be surrounded in community. So that's Shmira. And Tahara, as Rabbi Klickfeld mentioned, has training that goes along with it. And we've trained 120 people to know how to do Tahara. Um, and the, the reason that I said 60 is because not all of them then chose to take that training and actually physically do the work. But there are 60 people who were interested based off of that training to know what it means to ha have your hands um, in this holy mitzvah in, in this moment. And I can answer more questions about that another time, but I wanted you to know what the tahara was. So if you're interested in Hevra Kadisha in this community, you don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to be someone who wants to be present with a person who has, who has died. You do not have to be someone who... Um, is uh, proficient in what it looks like to console a family, you can just be, and I don't mean just because it's simple, you can be a person who's part of Shmira, or you can be a person who gets the training just to know what it is to then help other people feel like this is a mitzvah that they might want to be part of. So we'll be continuing this on November 18th after services. And then at some point, we'll actually put into practice the series that Rabbi Schatz had designed that we had postponed. Uh, it's often said, because it's true, the first mitzvah by God in the Torah is? Pruru, be fruitful and multiply. That's the first commandment that God gives to humanity. The first mitzvah that God gives to the Jewish people after they form as a Jewish people upon Exodus from Sinai is? Uh, even before the obligation of Pesach is HaChodesh HaZelechem, the notion of Rosh Chodesh, of, of creating a Jewish calendar, that time in the Jewish world is governed by the lunar calendar, the solar calendar. One of the first mitzvahs that we actually see a Jew, a Hebrew do, not a commandment by God, but actually seeing it in action, is the very beginning of next week's Parsha, when Sarah dies... 
And Avraham, the first Jew in our tradition, takes care of her burial arrangements and purchases a plot from Ephron and sets up a grave. When I do an unveiling, I say that we are actually doing one of the oldest Jewish obligations because the Torah shows that Avram said that you need a place that someone is buried that you can return to and can be a place on earth where that person's presence is invoked most intensely. By means of which I mean, by which I mean that the notion of taking care of those who have died is one of the oldest ways that Jews have expressed what it means to be a Jew. And, what, and one of the oldest ways that Jews have expressed what it means to understand that every human being is created in the image of God and therefore deserves the same dignity and care and attention and sensitivity as anyone else. A lot of that has dissipated as the traditional ancient world met the modern world. There are modern norms too. There are modern mores too. We don't live an ancient life. But the moments when our ancient tradition bursts through contemporary society and reminds us of what's so significant and helps us look past some of the trappings of the modern material American world, those are very important moments. And we are look forward to continuing to talk about this with you, to educate you, so that when you are in that place of having to uh, think ahead about or plan last minute uh, regarding the death of a loved one, You'll have more of these ideas in your mind. We, you and I will be on the same page about these issues and we'll be able to treat the burial of your loved one with love and dignity and sensitivity. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.